Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Jessica Lilly. Today we'll talk with Jeanette Walls, author of the New York Times best-selling book, The Glass Castle, which has also been made into a film. She says for years she pushed away the memories of a difficult childhood spent in poverty. But a chance encounter led her to tell her story. I've come to believe that very often these things about ourselves that we dislike so much are the best thing we have going for us. And for me, it certainly was. What can Appalachia learn from post-coal economies out west? We'll talk with a reporter in Colorado about how former coal communities are trying to rebuild their local economies. They can live relatively cheaply compared to our urban areas. There are trails or restaurants or whatever that are attractive to young people. And in a few towns in the West, that has actually turned into especially young families coming and staying. You'll find these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Jessica Lilly. Today we're revisiting an episode that we originally aired a few years ago. It's about poverty. Sadly, poverty is an issue that we're sure to hear even more about in the coming months, perhaps years, as our country grapples with the effects of the recession we're currently facing as a result of COVID-19. On today's show, we're going to hear different ways of reporting on financial security, or lack thereof. From a coal miner who lost his job, to a longtime welfare director... How do we talk about folks who are good at making do with what they have? How do we react when we hear these stories? Well, one woman wrote a book about her life. Jeanette Walls grew up poor in America. She wrote about it in her best-selling memoir, The Glass Castle. Walls spent most of her childhood west of the Mississippi River, but her father, who was originally from West Virginia, eventually brought her family back to McDowell County, where she lived for four years. Eventually, Jeanette moved to New York in search of what she thought would be a better life. She found success and even an apartment on Park Avenue, all while her parents continued to live off the streets. Here's a clip from the movie when Jeanette's father, played by Woody Harrelson, showed up uninvited to a fancy party. <laughs> Swanky, I don't see one of your mama's paintings. What are you doing here? <laughs> Just networking with all these fantastic people. Every time someone leaves, you act like a child. You'd think you'd be used to it by now. What's that supposed to mean? It's not a surprise, Dad. Look around. This ain't you. You ain't like those pawns, and you know it. Don't turn this on me. You're a walls. You were born to change the world, not just add to the noise. You cannot marry that fool. You're better than him, and you're better than that gossip column. You're a real writer. I like my life, Dad. Well, then why is all your crap so packed up in those boxes? The story is about dreaming big and a father's devotion to pushing his children to be brave enough to pursue their dreams, all the while battling alcoholism and the turbulent life that can come along with it. In her book, Jeanette Wall shares some compelling stories of hunger, bullying, and shame. I hope that people see the movie with an open mind. You know, there's some tough scenes in it. And um, I think that it's basically about love and family. And there's a lot of pain in it. There's a lot of hurt, but there's a lot of joy as well. I believe it's ultimately um, triumphant. You know, even though it's even though it's nonfiction, we shape our truths by which stories we choose and how we choose to tell them. Just before the movie was released in theaters, I spoke with Jeanette about why she wanted to write this book. 
You know, I'd, I tried a number of times when I was younger. I'd, when my 20s, I'd write a couple hundred pages and throw it away, and then a couple hundred pages when I was in my 30s. And I just I, – I tried to fictionalize it one time. I, I didn't know if I was supposed to make it stranger or less strange. Like, what was I supposed to change? And then one day, um, seeing – when I, I used to write about celebrities for a living, and I was – in a taxi in, in New York City, and I saw a homeless woman rooting through the garbage, and I got a good look at her, and I realized it was my mother. And I got together with her a couple of days later, and I said, Mom, what the heck am I supposed to tell people when they ask me about you? And she said, tell them the truth. And that was sort of the kick in the behind I needed to hmm. confront this past of mine that I had for so long tried to escape and tried to pretend didn't exist. I was completely convinced that if people knew the truth about me that I'd get fired. I did not think that my book would resonate that it would sell well. That is not why I told my story. I told it because I couldn't not tell it any longer. I was just tired of being ashamed of who and what I was. I've come to believe that very often these things about ourselves that we dislike so much are the best thing we have going for us. And for me, it certainly was. This past that I've tried to cut myself off from, it was, it was the better part of me. And that's why I've become such a big fan of storytelling. I think that if you can go back and revisit the sometimes painful memories, but also sometimes beautiful. The thing is, if you cut yourself off from the pain, you cut yourself off from the beauty as well. I want to talk a little bit about McDowell County in southern West Virginia. Mm-hmm. It seemed like the writing and how you described Phoenix and places out west before you moved to West Virginia had more of a positive vibe to it. And when you get to McDowell County, there's uh, a certain mm-hmm. darkness to mm-hmm. the language. Yeah. It, but in, in both places, you grew up in poverty. Yeah. Why was it different in McDowell? I think it's, first of all, I think it's easier to be poor in a warm place, you know, especially if your parents <laughs> don't provide heat in your housing. So, I mean, it was, it was cold. It was cold in West Virginia. I mean, um, in, when we lived in McDowell County, coal was cheap at the time. We could have bought a ton for 35 to $50, and they just didn't buy it. It was, it was cold, and um, I was hungry all the time. I mean, I, I, the school in Phoenix, it, just, it, it provided free lunches in a way that wasn't embarrassing. Um, they made a big deal at the school I went to. If the, the lunch tickets were a different color if you got a free lunch, and Mom wouldn't let us do it. So I was cold, and I was hungry. Um, it was not McDowell County's fault. It was not West Virginia's fault. Um, but our circumstances got very, very grim there. And I think that one of the things that also happened is that my father was born in, in McDowell County in Welch. And, um, I think that returning home for him was a bit of a defeat and he sank very deep into alcoholism. Because he, he, he went back with his mother and father, who were also alcoholics, and his brother. And he just got sucked back into this really destructive lifestyle. And we stopped moving around. It was always whenever times got tough, we just would stay there in one location for a short time. And then we'd move again and start afresh. Dad called it doing the skedaddle. And we just stopped moving. It was, it was like my father had, had confronted his demon and the, and the demons kind of won. This book is in no way meant to in any way disparage West Virginia or McDowell County or Welch, which is filled with lovely, kind, generous people. But our circumstances were very, very difficult. I think that one of the reasons that this book has resonated and has been on the bestseller list for some ridiculous amount of time, like seven years, is because poverty and hardships and addiction, it exists everywhere. My story is not unique. 
Uh, some people say, well, you know, it's, it's extreme. And you'd be surprised by some of the stories that I hear, and sometimes in very affluent areas. You know, people go to great lengths to hide their poverty, and I did. And you described your dad in the book as an alcoholic. And, yeah. But yeah. at the same time, you also paint him in a hero's light as very innovative and smart. My father was a magnificent man. There's, I mean, I, I adore him, and um, to this day I miss him. He died in 1994. Um, he was both the best and the worst of fatherhood. You know, but in, anybody who's dealt with an addict knows how they break your heart. He couldn't fight his demons, but he gave us the tools to do that as children. And, you know, he he just always um, told us that we deserved something better, that we that we were strong, that we were resilient. All of this traveling around, all of this chaos, he always said that that was temporary, that one of these days he was going to build us a, a great big mansion, and he called it the Glass Castle. And when times would get tough, he'd pull out the blueprints for the Glass Castle. It was it was about hope and belief in yourself and belief in the future, and I believe that it if a child gets that, along with a love of education and a sense of self-esteem, that you can make it through just about anything. And that's why I'm not angry with him or anybody. I mean, I certainly bear no ill will towards my family or anyone I grew up with in West Virginia. You know, we, there's some tough stories there, and, and there still are. They're good people just trying to, to make it out. And one of the reasons I love having written this book is that so many people come up to me and say, they say, the details of our lives are very different, but you and I could be sisters. You know, and sometimes they were raised in fancy areas in Boston, but their, their father's a pill addict or something. And, and that's why we tell our stories. I'm not looking for sympathy, not looking to, um, to tell horror stories, but to make emotional connections with people who we might think there is no connection with. And perhaps uh, provide a window into this world and, and different realities. I mean, I know you said that you mentioned that people can relate to it, but it's also realities that not a whole lot of folks talk about. But exactly. showing that showing that you can have those realities and you can still succeed and wearing it and being proud of it. Yeah. yeah, I think that's a very important point to make. It's like, I think that some people look at, you know, poor folk and just think, oh, and put, you know, why, why do they live that that white trash, black trash, whatever, you know, why, why don't they take care of themselves? And one of the reasons I'm so, that I love this movie so much is it goes beyond the stereotypes and shows that people who, from a distance, you might be able to just be able to put a, a, a label on them and say, we know their type. But behind what we see, there's always a story. And things are much more complicated than you think. And they, they look, might look like des people in desperate poverty, but there are hopes and dreams and and love there as well. And that's something I hope people don't forget. I want to get back to Welch just a little bit more. Did spending some time in Welch and meeting your dad's family, I know in the book you described your West Virginia grandparents as enormous and mumbling and you could hardly understand some of them. And there was some... Uh, sexual abuse involved in that as well. But um, did spending time in Welch and meeting your dad's family and, and your grandparents help you to perhaps understand your dad more? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I'd, I'd always seen him as a as a hero. As, like there was nothing wrong with him except when he got drunk. Then he became a monster. But other than that, he just seemed to me this perfect, almost, you know, movie star, handsome, strong man who just, the, 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 that there was that he was perfect. And then you see, oh my gosh, this is so complicated. It's, you know, the little 10-year-old girl realizing that um, his his parents are just not who I thought they would be. And it forced me to rethink him. And again, it's not because they were West Virginian or anything. I mean, there are, there are difficult and dysfunctional families everywhere. Mm -hmm. 
you know, West Virginia has not cornered the market on <laughs> on poverty. Um, but I think that they were they were very destructive in, in a way that that broke my heart because I I loved my father so much I couldn't imagine anybody not treating him well, mm-hmm. and it was bewildering to me. Um, and that that the grandparents didn't treat us that well either, and it was just it was a little bit of a um, <clears throat> a head turner. And so I, you know, I, I one time heard that we become adults not when we become of age to vote or when we, you know, have become drinking age. It's when we realize that our parents are human beings too, and that they have flaws, but that, that they have issues, and that's okay. That they, you know, unless they're truly, truly toxic, which I don't believe that my parents were. I mean, some people might disagree with me on that, but I think they had so much love and so much goodness to give. And everything in life is both a blessing and a curse. It's entirely up to us which one we choose to focus on. You know, my my, my father had very dark things about him, but he also had incredible moments of light. And do I want to sit around feeling sorry for myself and focus on the darkness and focus on the alcoholism? Or do I want to focus on the gifts he gave me, the love of learning, the sense of self-esteem, the the blueprints for the glass castle, you know, which was a hope and a dream for the future. That was Jeanette Walls, author of the best-selling book, The Glass Castle. A movie that's based on the book is out on video. Here's a scene in which Jeanette is at a fancy restaurant in New York with her mother. Jeanette's mom is emptying sugar packets into a glass of water while Jeanette offers some financial help. Mom? Your dad said he saw you pass by in a cab the other night. Acted like we weren't even there. You shouldn't be ashamed of us just because we choose a different lifestyle than you. Being homeless in New York City does not count as a lifestyle choice. Well, if we heard from you more, you'd know that we found a lovely place on the Lower East Side. Lori says you're squatting in an abandoned building. That does not sound safe, Mom. When did you lose your sense of adventure? I have a little bit of money now. I can help you if you want. Mm-mm-mm. We're fine. You're the one who needs help. Look at you. Your values are all confused. In a minute, we'll talk with Jeanette Walls about how people in West Virginia have reacted to her story and hear her response to people who say the book is an unfair portrayal of Appalachians. You're Inside Appalachia. I'm Jessica Lilly. We'll be right back. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. Today on our show, we're exploring ways to talk about resilience in the face of tough odds and about why we have such strong feelings about being poor. Now let's continue listening to writer Jeanette Walls, who spent part of her childhood in McDowell County in southern West Virginia and wrote about it in a memoir called The Glass Castle. The book was made into a movie last year starring Woody Harrelson and Naomi Watts. Here's a clip of the movie when the family sees their new home in Welch, West Virginia. Welcome to 93 Little Hobart Street. Fifty bucks a week and in two years we'll own her outright. 
Hard to believe one day this will all be ours. Hey, she may not look like much, but wait till you see what I have in mind. Come on, come on, come on. We're gonna tear all this down and replace it with your game room. Ping pong, pool, foosball. Trampoline? Oh yeah, trampoline goes right over there. And then uh, all these walls are gone, replaced with three inch glass, 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 glass. This can stay. Doesn't that look lovely? Yellow stands for happiness and creativity. This place doesn't have any running water or electricity. Ignore her. She was born without vision. Part of the movie was filmed in Welch, the county seat of McDowell. Jeanette said her friends and family in West Virginia have mixed feelings about parts of the book and the film. It's split about 50-50 between people who like and don't like the book. A lot of people feel it was unfair, that it's not the whole story. And I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I respect that opinion. I really do. And it's certainly not their story. I mean... A lot of people there lived in handsome houses, had indoor plumbing, could take a bath every day. That wasn't my situation. Um, um, a lot of people have said, oh, this is just dead on. This, is, this was my life, too. In fact, um, the wonderful, wonderful director, he went to, to Welch um, before the whole thing started shooting. He just wanted to see the setting and the, the scene. And I, I offered to go with him. He said, no, no I can handle it on it. The truth is he probably did better without me than he would have with me. And he, he's walking down Wyoming Street, which is in kind of in downtown Welch, and, and he sees this sign that says the Welch Daily News. And there's, this, a, a, there's a lot of scenes in the Welch Daily News because that's where I sort of learned journalism. So he just knocks on the door and he meets the editor, and they ended up filming a scene at the Welch Daily News. The people at the Welch Daily News were kind of supportive of, of um, the book, and, and they know, they've been out there reporting, they know that there are many families like mine that are in really tight circumstances. I mean, Welch, it's, it used to be a really booming city, and it's fallen on hard times through no fault of anybody there, but the, the coal mining industry is... It's changed a great deal. Unemployment is very high. But in addition to that, they've had some catastrophic floods. And they're just really trying to pull it together and feel good about themselves. And God bless them. You know, I would love for for the, the city to turn itself around. But it's it's in a tight spot right now. The one passage that really made me cry was when you were um, leaving Welch and going to New York. And uh, you talk about your dad lighting a cigarette and it says, unlike him, she would make it out for good. So there's, you know, mixed feelings about how hard it was in West Virginia. And, you know, there's this turbulence to it. But then there's also a beauty to it, which also seemed to be reflected in your father. Yes, I think it's very, very well said. You know, he, um, a very conflicted man, light and dark, beauty and, and harshness. Um, and it's funny, when I was watching that film, that scene in the movie, I, I burst into tears. I was just, it, it kind of ripped me apart. Because he, you know, in in leaving, was I deserting him? Uh, you know, it's just, it, and again, this is something I think a lot of people can relate to. Their circumstances might not be as difficult, but I just talked to this lovely young woman who said she felt the same thing when she was going off to college. So my situation might be more extreme than some people's, might be less extreme than some, but it's not unique. You know, we all share these same emotions and same experiences to some degree. What do you want people to take away from the book and the movie then? I hope that when people watch the movie, the movie or read the book, I hope that what they end up thinking about is their own story. I hope that they're thinking less about me than themselves. I, we all have a story, and sometimes hearing or seeing a story about someone else elicits a response that makes you think about, hmm... That reminds me of the time that X, Y, Z happened. And so far, it's been quite wonderful. A number of people have told me that 
They left the movie theater and then burst into tears thinking about their own father who maybe wrestled with alcoholism or their own mother who was maybe a little bit loopy or their own decision to leave home. And and that's what it's about. I, I kind of feel it's really not about me. It's about families who just struggle to get by. You know, It's a complicated unit, families. There's, there's so much love and joy, but there can also be pain and disappointment. And it's all part of the same package. And it's it's complicated. And I think that the director did a spectacular job of conveying the, the nuances and the complexities of family. Do you think it's important for the rest of the world to sort of know these kinds of stories, specifically as it relates to parts of Appalachia and McDowell County, um, as far as the impact that it could have Absolutely. on the image? Absolutely, and- I do. You know, I um, the book was... Um, uh, required reading in a, in a very upscale um, suburb of Dallas, and one teacher, one parent, objected to one of the scenes in it, and so got removed from the uh, recommended reading list. And um, uh, the other teachers and the parents and the students, bless their hearts, stood up and said, "We need to know about stories like this. We are so privileged and so protected. We need to know that families are living like this." I cannot tell you the number of parents who've told me, thank you for this story because my kids are so privileged. They need to understand how fortunate they are. I was at one event and um, somebody stood up and said, I refuse to believe that people were going hungry in America in the 1960s and 70s. And somebody else stood up and said, you know, honey, you need to do a little more volunteer work because this is not something that used to happen. It's something that still happens. I believe people are good and compassionate and have big hearts, but sometimes they just got to have their eyes opened up a little. And I think that that's what storytelling does. You know, these, the people of West Virginia are good and kind and decent, hardworking people who are in a tight spot. And let's not turn our backs and pretend that this sort of stuff doesn't exist or to stereotype them, which is even worse about like, shift loads, why don't they get a job, whatever. You know, that it's so much more complicated than that. There aren't jobs in some of these places. These people, might, they might look different from you. They might live in a different part of the country. They might speak differently. But basically, we're all the same. We have the same wants and needs and desires. We all, all want to feel respected and safe. We want to take care of our families and feel good about ourselves in the future. And, and I think that's what storytelling does is it sort of it makes you – it removes the barriers that we erect to think we're protecting ourselves when all what we're doing is isolating ourselves. And you mentioned before that you – you know, got rid of your sense of shame and that you're now, you know, trying to be proud of your background. And you talked about people, you know, outside of this region, perhaps, you know, and the message to hopefully they can take away from it. What about the folks who are here who Mm -hmm, say, well, mm -hmm. we're not all like that and still kind of encourage this kind of shame of that we should be ashamed of these kind of things, but it's, it's still our realities. How, what would you say to those folks? Well, I, you know, shame is a complicated thing because it, it, where it comes from is it, it is you think that people won't accept you. You think people won't understand. So it's, something, it's a self-imposed punishment, and it's something that I completely take responsibility for. That was me. That was me thinking I wasn't as good as other people. The shame that I was feeling, it was foolish. It was nonsense. Um, it also, but it also gave me the kick in the behind I needed to change my circumstances. But like you said, not everybody in that, in West Virginia shares my circumstances. Mine was very extreme. This is not typical of West Virginia. It's not typical of Welch. My parents would have been impoverished if we lived in Paris or Monaco or Boston. And this was not West Virginia's problem. This was my parents, alcoholic and 
and a, a mother who was more interested in painting than writing. This is not a reflection of West Virginia. This just happens to be where I was. So the story is not about West Virginia. It's about me. People are complicated. People are nuanced. Um, it's easy to pigeonhole and stereotype. And there can be some truth in it, but the, but the, the tricky thing about stereotypes and characters is that it's not the whole truth. There might be a grain of truth, but that's why stereotypes are so insidious is because there, even that there might be a bit of truth, but it's not the whole story. Jeanette Wall says growing up poor has taught her a lot and made her who she is. And today she's proud of who she is because it shows how far she's come. A lot of us go through tough times, but I believe that those of us who endure these tough times actually can be an advantage at an advantage over those who didn't because we learned so much about life and about each other. And, you know, adversity introduces one to oneself. And the the great thing, everything in life is both a blessing and a curse. And the great thing about having been raised the way that I was is that I'm a fighter and a scrapper. And the unfortunate thing about the way that I was raised is that I'm a fighter and a scrapper. And it took me a long time to understand that you don't always have to fight, that at a certain point in life you take off the armor and there are good and kind and warm people there willing to embrace you. And if one person gets that message from this movie, then this will all have been worth it. That was Jeanette Walls, who wrote a memoir of her life growing up poor in America called The Glass Castle, which has also been adapted into a film. We often hear that Appalachian families are struggling with hunger, addiction, and poverty much more than the rest of the country. But as we'll hear in this next story, it's not only McDowell County. There are pockets of the United States where families face conditions comparable to a third-world country. Law professor Philip Alston is a United Nations expert on extreme poverty. He reports on places of pervasive poverty like Haiti, South Asia, Central Africa. And just recently, he was here in Appalachia. Shortly after his 2017 trip here, he spoke with NPR's Kelly McEvers about a report he's compiling on how the United Nations treats its most vulnerable people. Philip Alston has spent the past two weeks traveling around the United States. First, Washington, D.C., then Los Angeles, San Francisco, Alabama, Puerto Rico, and finally West Virginia. The United States is one of the wealthiest countries in the world, but Alston wanted to understand how it is that 40 million Americans live in poverty. He is the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty and Human Rights, and he's with us now. Welcome to the show. Thank you. What were you looking for on your trip? I was looking primarily to see the relationship between the civil rights, which the United States holds so dear, and poverty. In other words, if you live in poverty in this country, can you actually enjoy the civil and political rights which you are supposedly guaranteed? Just give us some examples of of things you found in places like here in Los Angeles or, or in Alabama or in West Virginia. To go to Skid Row in Los Angeles to see the extent of it, the never-ending encampments and tents, the really grim circumstances under which people live. To go to Alabama to meet with people who live in areas that have no sewerage connection and so their sewage is basically just pumped out into their gardens. Those sorts of things have a pretty big impact. In a presentation for the State Department today, you talked about something that I thought was really interesting. You said that you were struck by the extent to which caricatured narratives about the purported innate differences between the rich and poor have been sold to people by politicians in the media. Just explain that a little bit. 
so the rich are industrious, entrepreneurial, patriotic, and the drivers of economic success. The poor, on the other hand, are wasters, losers, and scammers. So as a result, money spent on welfare is money down the drain. Uh, money uh, devoted to the rich is a sound investment. The reality is that the United States now has probably the lowest degree of social mobility among all the rich countries. And if you are born poor, guess where you're going to end up? Poor. Your findings were not all bad. You talked about some groups that you were in contact with that, that, that do some pretty great work. I wonder if you could give us some examples there. I was very impressed by uh, a lot of the community organizing that's going on in many places. I was very impressed by a voluntary health, dental, even psychological care clinic that I saw called West Virginia Health Right, which has no full-time doctors or dentists, but relies on volunteer services from those communities and ends up seeing 21,000 patients a year. Do you think that groups like that are a solution to the bigger problem, or they're just one piece of what needs to be more systemic changes? I have to admit that sometimes I fear that such uh, superb and much-needed initiatives, they are taking the pressure off the state and the state can sort of sit back and say, oh, well, there's no need in that area. It's being done by these guys. Hmm. You have been around the world looking at this issue up close. You know, how does the U.S. compare? Well, I think one of the most striking things is the lack of political will. Um, I don't want to draw a comparison with China, but I did have to say when I was there that what was impressive was that Xi Jinping had made it a priority of his administration to eradicate extreme poverty. And when people said to me, ah, but he's just trying to keep control of the Communist Party, my response was, I think every politician is trying to keep control of government, and if others <laughs> would dedicate themselves to eliminating poverty, then that would be great. Philip Alston is the UN Special Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty and Human Rights. Thanks for your time today. Thanks. My pleasure. That story originally aired December of 2017 on NPR's All Things Considered. So as we just heard, Appalachia is not the only place in America where some people live in extreme poverty. But several communities here are among the poorest. On Inside Appalachia, we're often looking back at our history and trying to understand how did this happen? Our problems have been long in the making, and that's the same conclusion our next guest came to after spending nearly a year researching Appalachia's economy. Gwen Guilford is a reporter for the business news site Quartz. Back in 2018, she published an article called The 100-Year Capitalist Experiment that keeps Appalachia poor, sick, and stuck on coal. Roxy Todd spoke with Guilford about her report. Let's start a little bit with your story and how you became interested in researching Appalachia's economy. So basically, in uh, early 2017, I was researching uh, mortality rates and how in certain populations in the U.S. Uh, they're rising. And I was trying to figure out there was a lot of attention on opioid uh, overdoses and how those were influencing 
the rates, uh, rising death rates. And I was trying to unravel this big puzzle of, you know, what the heck is going on? Why are people dying at higher rates um, at younger ages and stuff like that? And at some point, I, I started looking at maps trying to figure out, because, you know, you look at the U.S. in aggregate, it really doesn't tell you very much. And I started looking at maps and uh, of mortality rates and realized there were a few pockets of areas with worse health outcomes with, you know, people dying um, younger and at higher rates. And one of those areas was central Appalachia. And then I, you know, would look at specific, um, you know, causes of death and pretty much across the board, uh, central Appalachia was among the highest places in the U.S. And then, you know, the more I started to look into that, the more I realized the, the social problems and economic problems, like pretty much any you know, issue, you name it, whether it's unemployment or welfare uh, reliance and, and of course, health stuff, uh, there, it was, you know, the same area was having way more intense, uh, way more problems than other parts of the U.S. and other parts immediately bordering it. She says a diverse economy didn't develop in central Appalachia because coal companies chronically underpaid workers. And, well, everyone relied on coal. Right. So a lot of these themes relate to a problem that is sort of de- defining issue of our, our time, um, which is wealth inequality. Um, Ap- central Appalachia has been struggling with this problem for a really long time, and now it's you know, becoming a massive problem for all of America. Um, but, you know, for starters, you know, you could look at the middle class and uh, one of the problems with the structure of central Appalachia's economy and the way it developed and its reliance on coal is that, you know, it chronically underpaid workers and didn't allow a diverse economy to develop that would have, you know, shifted purchasing power to households. Um, so that basically made it so there was this kind of a middle class never emerged, really. And in the U.S., I mean, speaking more broadly, the the creation of the middle class, which, again, is this, like, engine of consumption growth that really buoyed America's uh, economic expansion for, like, you know, 30 years after um, World War II, 30, 40 years. So the, the middle class was basically created by New Deal reforms that sort of intertwined the interests of capital and labor so that, you know, when labor benefits, the owners of the capital benefit too. And, you know, everybody is better off when the other party is doing well. Um, that relationship has decoupled in, since, you know, probably the 80s. And now America as a whole is looking increasingly like central Appalachia in its absence or, you know, the shrinking of its middle class. And that's a sign that, you know, the economy is not is, is not as healthy as it should be. Central Appalachia, you know, there's no way of formally measuring this, but um, based on its reliance on, on coal, it hasn't been able to develop a a, you know, broad, rich, diverse base of industry and is therefore much more fragile and vulnerable to, like, boom-bust cycles and these patterns that, you know, you see happen time and again in central, central Appalachia over the last 150 years that really, like, hurt communities. So 
to oversimplify even more, it's a lot of money being spent to produce one product, coal, um, extract coal, and the money that comes out of that is not going back to reinvesting in the people or the infrastructure. It's just going to support that industry over and over again. Right. And that's a really important point you just uh, hit upon. And that, you know, it has a lot to do with the absentee land ownership that, you know, came about for various reasons of colonial development um, and land speculation. Uh, But, you know, most of the land in central Appalachia is not was not historically and still is not owned by people who actually live there. And so those people don't have, they don't, you know, have any stake in the communities there. They don't have any reason to um, reinvest in developing the human capital and, you know, public services and goods um, in those communities. And that's just a really bad bunch of incentives. Like their incentive is just to make as much profit as possible uh, for their shareholders who live in New York and Baltimore and London um, and, you know, now all over the globe. Well, definitely in this age of, you know, constant parachute journalism and having been through the last presidential election when the media swarmed in on Appalachia yet again, it's refreshing to talk to someone who's spent a lot of time digging into the context and the history. And I just really appreciate um, you spending the time looking into this and thinking deeply about issues that are pretty difficult for, I think, the rest of the country to really grapple with. So I appreciate your work and for chatting with me today. Yeah, I mean, I have to say I appreciate, <laughs> this is, sounds lame, but your region. Uh, like, the, I learned so much. It was so fascinating. And I'm you know, there's stuff like labor history that, you know, this is a pivotal place in terms of our country's labor, labor movement. And we don't learn anything about this. We don't learn anything about, you know, Blair Mountain and Meatwan and, and the absentee land ownership. Um, and it is, it, you know, as we've discussed, has so much to teach the rest of America that I think is really important. So, yeah, um, thank you for having me on. <laughs> That was economic reporter Gwen Guilford speaking with Roxy Todd. Guilford's article about Appalachia's economy was published earlier this year in Quartz Magazine. You can find a link on our website, wvpublic.org. There you can also hear stories about several of the things Guilford mentioned that are part of Appalachia's culture, like the mine wars and West Virginia's bloody labor history. Guilford also mentioned the issue of absentee land ownership. A report published several years ago found that the top 25 landowners in West Virginia own about a fifth of the state. Most of those landowners live elsewhere. The report was released by the West Virginia Center on Budget and Policy, and it's the first study to take a close look at land ownership since the 1970s. Land ownership has an impact on the ability of local people to build their economy, own businesses, grow food, and clean up hazardous waste. Again, you can learn more about these topics on our website, wvpublic.org. Today on Inside Appalachia, we're learning how our reliance on coal and other extractive industries have affected our region's economy. We've also heard several ways these industries have left us with environmental hazards and waste that we'll be struggling to clean up and pay for for years to come. We wanted to see how communities out west are coping with these same issues. After all, 
we're not the only ones grappling with the boom and bust cycles of mining. Kate Schimmel is a Colorado native. She lives in Paonia, Colorado, and works at High Country News as their deputy editor digital. She's also the co-host of a podcast called West Obsessed, which is produced in collaboration with KVNF Community Radio. She's worked with newsrooms in Montana, New Mexico, and Colorado to report on the economic declines rural communities out west are facing. I asked Kate onto our show this week to tell us more about what it means for communities out west to economically depend on one industry, coal. Kate, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. What did you find? How are mining communities affected by the boom and bust cycles in talking about the challenges? Yeah, one of the challenges that I've found, actually not in my reporting, but I live in a small town that has a long history of coal mining. And one of the biggest challenges is we've seen now many years of contraction in the coal industry. So we started out with about eight coal mines. There may even have been more before that. But what I remember is eight, and that shrunk down to three when I moved here. And then now we're looking at one where a lot of the work is automated, done by machines and not by humans. And so what we've seen at a very basic level is a decline in really high-paying jobs, jobs with a salary of median uh, $80,000 a year. That's sort of, for our community, an incredible salary to be making, and very few local businesses can even come close to matching that. I think our median salary in the county now is somewhere in the range of 35000 So at a basic level, you lost jobs, and then you lost the spending that those jobs allowed people to do. So you have local businesses that really struggled to sell enough to serve enough meals. And I think at sort of a a different level, we saw the community really struggle to figure out what our future is. Who are we going to be? And that was a tough process that I think we're still in the middle of. And that's what we're seeing in a lot of communities across the West. Some are sort of further along than we are. They've really thought about what they're going to do when coal really finally goes away. And some are further behind. They are still trying to find ways to bring coal back, to uh, reopen coal mines, which is possible in some areas, but in many areas is unlikely to happen due to economic forces, social forces, uh, regulations, a whole variety of things. And where that leaves each community is really different. And I I have to say, I don't, I don't know that I've seen a single community kind of develop the entire way of responding to that, but the challenges ripple through the entire community, from the economics to the social issues and the culture of the town. Hmm. I think a lot of that sounds familiar to many of our Inside Appalachia listeners and is something that we've seen happen here in Appalachia as far as mechanization. You mentioned a lot of the high-paying jobs are being sort of replaced with machines and things like that and mechanization sort of taking the place of that. What do you think people can do to try to reinvent themselves? How are folks out West moving forward? What we've seen a lot of in the rural West is turning to more of a recreation or a lifestyle economy. So here in Paonia, what that looks like is we now have a cocktail bar that serves tapas. And some of that's for the community, right? Like community members go there, but that's as much for people passing through or for um, attracting people from the outside to come live here because Paonia is such a nice place to be. And that is hard for communities. The jobs are not as steady 
or as high paying as they were when we had coal mines open. And it requires some degree of planning. So it doesn't tend to be as attractive for a town to have sort of an open mine next to where they might want to recreate, right? Where they might want to go running or skiing or biking or wine tasting or whatever it is that that town wants to offer. And so figuring out how to plan for a future that might mean to some extent covering up your past is really hard. Um, I think some of the other choices towns are making or being forced to make is just shrinking, getting smaller, that sort of the depopulation of the rural West is very real and happening relatively quickly. Mm. Yeah, that's definitely something we're seeing here. Um, here in Appalachia, recreation tourism is also something that many small towns are trying. And it has brought in some jobs, but maybe not the same type of big salaries, like you mentioned uh, that are, you know, that people are used to in coal mining. How realistic is it to expect the recreation industry to provide living wages to residents in these rural communities? If if these, you mentioned the, you know, taco stand or the, you know, selling tacos in that one restaurant, if that continues to grow and there's more businesses that grow like that, I mean, is that realistic for that kind of community to provide a living wage, you think? I don't see recreation or lifestyle or service jobs getting up to the same level that that coal jobs did in terms of wage. I think there may be some affordability questions, like housing may come down to match that. But the reality is recreation dollars are getting spread around. And more and more small towns like yours, like mine, are competing for people's uh, sort of disposable income, right? And I talked to an economist about whether that can continue to grow. And his take was, yes, yes, there is more growth to happen, right? Like people can build out more recreation, more tourism, and attract more people to their town. But at some point, there's a limit. And whether you can turn sort of tourism and recreation, people passing through, right, into permanent residence is not clear. And that's what most towns want. They want people to come through and stay, right? They don't want to keep losing young people, losing people with kids, families. They want people to come and live here. And that's a much harder thing to do. So it might be possible to have more restaurants where people could have server jobs. The question of whether your young people will actually want to do that and will stay here and raise their families is a whole other question. What kind of expectations do people have for the future? You mentioned that you know, a lot of people are leaving and and we're certainly seeing that here as people are deciding to move away. I mean, do they see a future in staying? Are, are they are people staying and trying to create new things? Yeah, they are. And it depends on your town. But I think in a lot of towns, you do have somewhat of a stabilization of people moving back to that town and trying to build something a reporter I worked with did some research and found that more towns than I expected certainly are actually growing or attracting young people or at least holding steady. And they're usually doing that through a few different avenues. One is university or small college, state school or community college is attracting young people. And then some of those people stay after. I think the others are 
that sort of lifestyle side of things, right? So there's recreation and tourism, getting people to come through your town and spend money there and then leave once they're done. There's also the sort of side effect of that, that town can be a really fun place to live. There are trails or restaurants or whatever that are attractive to young people. And in a few towns in the West, that has actually turned into especially young families coming and staying because it's a good place to raise their kids or to live. They can live relatively cheaply compared to our urban areas and still have a really great quality of Mm -hmm. Anything else that they're looking at doing or trying to do to grow their economies? One of the examples I found most fascinating was Anaconda, Montana, is actually trying. They had a really big mine and manufacturing infrastructure that closed down. And they have these giant heaps of slag, which are the waste. And they're actually trying to use that mining waste to... um, do things like paving or manufacturing. So they're actually trying to sort of stick to their manufacturing and mining past and turn that into a viable economy to uh, provide jobs. That's happening in a few different places. You know, not everywhere is leaving natural resource dependent economy for something else. Sometimes they're trying to turn it into something different or they're trying to sustain it at a lower level. That's particularly true with logging out here. It's maybe less true with coal mining. Um, But trying to log enough to provide enough jobs to keep enough people in town that town at least doesn't disappear. Is there anything else that you could share that you found interesting and striking as a native to the region and being able to report on this and seeing your community and people move away and people also stay and invest in their community to try and find a new economy? Yeah, I'll give you a resident's answer, not a reporter's answer, which is that when people decide to live somewhere, I think it's so important that they decide to take on everything about that place, right? And invest in um, helping that place be a really good community, a really effective community, whatever that looks like for your town. And I've been so struck by how different that can be from town to town. You know, some towns have these incredible communities where people show up to town meetings, to town council. They run for uh, local positions. They volunteer. And they can build such a strong economy through that, like through that cohesion. And then in other communities where they once made a lot of money, right, Formal coal, some former coal communities really struggling to figure out what to do next because they don't have that sort of social infrastructure, that um, community sense that we all need to invest in making sure that this town survives and that it's a place we want to live. I wish there were a better lesson other than the importance of investing in your community um, But certainly that's one of the things I've seen as a resident and I suppose as a reporter, too. Kate, thanks again for giving us some insights into what communities out west are doing to try to move beyond extractive industries. I know that states out west aren't quite as dependent on coal as we are here in West Virginia still. And the coal seams out your way still probably have many years worth of mining left in them. So it's not an identical situation, but I think it's interesting to learn from communities with a similar situation. So, And I really appreciate that. 
Well, thanks for having me. It's been fascinating to hear what you guys are working on as well. You can find more of Kate Schimmel's reporting on economic development in former mining communities in the West at High Country News and with the Solutions Journalism Network. We've posted a longer version of my conversation with Kate Schimmel on our website, wvpublic.org. Coal put food on the tables for many families, but did it also create the foundation for extreme poverty? And yet, we're resilient here in coal country, and we know how to lean on each other. That's one part of the legacy that I hope never goes away, and surprisingly, it connects us with others. Out in Colorado, coal community native Kate Schimmel reminds us that we're not alone. She believes the best way to revive and support your community is to get involved where you live. And that makes sense. Perhaps if more of the people who owned land in West Virginia actually lived in West Virginia, our legacy would look a little different. But here we are, and it's from here that we move forward. Till next week, thanks for joining me as we journey throughout Appalachia. We had help producing Inside Appalachia this week from NPR's All Things Considered, KBNF in Paonia, Colorado, High Country News, and the Solutions Journalism Network. Music in today's show was provided by Dinosaur Burps, Michael Howard, and Ben Townsend. Roxy Todd is our producer. Our executive producer is Andrea Billups. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce. You can find us online on Twitter at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at WVPublic.org. You can also address your letters to Inside Appalachia at West Virginia Public Broadcasting, 600 Capitol Street, Charleston, West Virginia, 25301. If you'd like to listen to any part of this episode again, don't forget you can subscribe or download all of our stories at wvpublic.org, and you can find Inside Appalachia on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jessica Lilly. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting.